This is a special edition of the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast dedicated to the memory of Dr. Barbara Tatum. I'm Anton Hellman. The original recording of this podcast was on August 28th, 2019 at my family cottage on the southern shores of Lake Simcoe in southern Ontario, about an hour outside of Toronto. I invited Dr. Tatum for the day to discuss physician compassion amongst acres of forest with the sound of waves lapping up on the small beach, interrupted only by the occasional bird call and barking of our family dog. We're going to share the heartbreaking personal story of our beloved EM colleague, please be prepared for some strong emotional content. You may notice that Dr. Tatum sounds short of breath on the podcast, and that's because she had an undiagnosed pulmonary embolism at the time of the recording. We emergency physicians get thrust into the front lines like all the time. We see blood and pain and gore and extreme emotions almost on a daily basis. EM seems to attract people with bravery and fortitude to endure extraordinary successes, followed by extraordinary catastrophes, repeatedly. But EM also requires compassion and empathy in our tumultuous environment. In a way, EM is sort of the perfect example of medicine being practiced at the intersection of science and humanity. How do we leave the trauma-based resuscitation rooms and bereavement rooms and continue our lives with family and friends without a warped perspective on humanity? Well, us humans luckily have the innate ability to compartmentalize and depersonalize repeated traumatic events. We see this in famines and in wars. It's how we protect ourselves so that we can get on with that pediatric airway or thoracotomy or whatever. Those moments of depersonalization ensures that we get the job done step-by-step, nuance-by-nuance, perform as experts, even in the face of total chaos. Now, coupled with this depersonalization requirement is a trend toward hyper-specialization and fragmented care in an era of knowledge explosion and technological advances. We use an approach based on anatomy and physiology, but we sometimes, probably often actually, Don't do what is actually right for the person, not the patient, but the person. The person in the stretcher in front of us is more than the sum of their anatomy and physiology. So with this need to depersonalize and trend to hyperspecialization, it's no surprise that when you look at the observational data, doctors aren't really very good at compassion. And we're getting less compassionate with each and every passing year we routinely miss emotional cues from patients and we miss boatloads of opportunities to respond to patients with compassion. It's clear in the medical literature. For example, a University of Washington study found that one-third of -of end-of-life discussions with families in the ICU had no statements of compassion by healthcare workers. A study of 1,300 patients out of Harvard found that nearly 50% of patients believe that providers in our healthcare system are not compassionate. And when healthcare providers were asked about trends in compassion, about two-thirds said they've observed a decline in compassionate care in the past five years. Similar trends are happening in the UK. The NHS Foundation Trust found that there's been a widespread and striking lack of compassion from healthcare providers. Now, you might be thinking that your EQ is high and that you do provide compassionate care. Well, It turns out that we're not very good at rating our own EQ, and the evidence suggests that our self-rated EQ doesn't correlate with patients' ratings of our EQ. How much time do we actually dedicate to compassion in our clinical encounters? You might be thinking that 5% or 10% or 20% of your time with a patient is dedicated to compassionate care. Well, I hate to say it, but you're wrong. Compassion takes up less than 1% of all communication time according to a study out of the University of Chicago. And that number is probably getting smaller with EMRs taking over, because we know that we're spending less time with patients and more time at the computer. One study found that internal medicine trainees spend only 12% of their time actually seeing patients. Now think about it. If we spend 12% of our time at the bedside, and 1% of that is devoted to compassionate care, we're spending less than a thousandth of our time being compassionate. That's crazy. 
Now, all of this is compounded by the physician burnout epidemic. One of the key features of burnout is depersonalization that is usually coupled with the inability to be compassionate. Now, as far as I'm aware, there's zero formal training in the Canadian five-year EM residency program on compassion or any patient communication for that matter. So when we're done with the resuscitation, the next most important aspect of care, I would argue, is compassionate care. Even as part of a resuscitation, as you'll hear later in the podcast, compassionate care not only can play a role, but may even lead to better outcomes. We're sometimes led to believe that sentiments like compassion are an expression of weakness rather than a sign of strength. This brings us to the question, is compassionate care valued in emergency medicine? Do you not have time for compassion? Do you not care about compassion? Do you not know how to be compassionate? Does compassion really matter? In this podcast, we're going to explore the notion that there's more to taking care of ED patients than being able to look at the eye of the storm and perform a thoracotomy or label the patient with this or that diagnosis. That our presence, connection with the patient, and the time spent educating them really does matter, no matter how brief our interaction is. We'll cover the evidence that compassionate care improves patient outcomes and staves off physician burnout. We'll discuss how compassion can be learned and applied easily and efficiently in our practice. We'll talk about the do's and the don'ts of compassionate care and end with a call to action. And to help us understand compassionate care, its importance, the evidence behind its value, and how we can make a huge difference in the lives of our patients and our own lives, it's my distinct pleasure and honor to have on the show the strongest person I know, and that's no exaggeration, a woman who has the unique perspectives of both emergency physician and patient, who's also scoured the world's literature on compassionate care. She's made it her mission to improve all of our lives through compassionate care. A woman who I've had the privilege of developing a friendship with over the last few years. You may have heard her on a previous EM Quick Hits podcast when we featured her segment from the EM Cases course this past spring. Welcome, Dr. Barbara Tatum. Hi, Anton. And thank you so much for having me today. It's funny, I would say I saw myself in this role maybe a couple of years in the future uh, after I've had the chance to pursue excellence as both an emergency physician and an educator. But it's really a beautiful thing to be sitting with you, and I thank you for that. I am an emergency physician, but I will tell the audience that it's not too long ago that I just finished my training in residency. At the end of last year, I was wrapping up only my first year in practice, and my year also doing a part-time fellowship uh, in emergency department ultrasound at London Health Sciences. I was then going to come to the University Health Network to start a full-time career as an emergency physician in Toronto. Although a year ago, or just over a year ago, everything changed. So as I was going through this transition and had a lot on my plate wrapping up things in London with both my career and my fellowship and getting ready for actually a global health trip for a month in Tanzania before then starting a full-time career at UHN. It was a really exciting time and a really busy time and a time where I also started to develop a little bump on my head. It was on the top of my head. It wasn't very big and it became flexion and mobile after a short period. So I asked a bunch of colleagues and asked a friend of mine who is a plastic surgeon about removal and everyone seemed to agree. So any flicker of thought that it was something else kind of went to the background because I was so busy with everything else. I was totally healthy. I'm only 32 years old, and there was nothing for me to think otherwise. I had no other symptoms. So I went to see my plastic surgeon on June 7th, and as he went to remove it, he told me he couldn't get around it. He couldn't get around it because he thought it went beyond the skull. And those words kept sitting with me and I couldn't understand. What do you mean it goes beyond the skull? So I went to get a CT after a biopsy and I came back and the nurse pulled up the imaging for me because she knew that I was a physician at the hospital. 
And so I scrolled through the image and landed upon a segment of the image that could not be missed. There was a five centimeter tumor that had completely destroyed my skull, projected outward and also inward, and was pushing on my brain. No symptoms. I sat there numb in disbelief and just had a weight fall over me. It couldn't be happening. I didn't go on that global health trip two days later, and I didn't start my career at University Health Network. Instead, I walked through the doors of Toronto Western Hospital, not as a physician, but as a patient. It's interesting, being a patient is far more stressful than I can describe, and it's far more stressful than being a physician. Over the past year, I've kind of become an expert at being a patient, though. I know I'm not exactly a typical patient, but it has allowed me to be able to ease fellow patients' anxiety and fears, and maybe bring weight to the understanding of empathy and to the narrative of compassionate care. Maybe. So that's why I shared And that's why I'm here today. What I have is a sarcoma, and the sarcoma was undifferentiated. So pathology in London, pathology in Toronto, pathology in the States, no one could actually identify what type of sarcoma I had. And even with a mutation that's only been seen three times before, they decided to leave it undiagnosed. So moving forward, there was no set plan and we had to do what everybody thought was best. And so I started with chemotherapy and I did it every three weeks last summer. At the same time, I got six weeks of daily radiation. This was all in preparation for surgery. You needed a little bit of time to recover from chemo and radiation, but October is when they went in to do surgery. So They did a full craniotomy and they pulled out the skull as well as part of the dura and did a dural patch and then a titanium plate that covered the skull. In terms of covering the skin and the defect over the skin, they did a rotational flap. Now, unfortunately, it was too tight and part of it opened up later in the month. There was an area that became necrotic and died. So at the end of October, I went under surgery number two, where I had a free flap from my forearm and a partial skin graft from my thigh to cover my forearm. This kept me in the ICU for a week. I was recovering well though, and at that time, I was believed to be cancer-free, so I was pretty happy. I stayed strong through recovery, but unfortunately the moments of things looking good didn't last very long. I ended up going to the fertility treatment much earlier than most people do after chemotherapy in efforts to harvest. I was unfortunately unsuccessful. Later that month, I found out that I was metastatic. As I started to limp from the lesion in my hip, I received radiation to my pelvis that caused that lesion to become sclerotic and actually took away all of my pain. So I walk normally with no pain today. It's remarkable. However, unfortunately, what that radiation also took away was my fertility. As the incision kept opening and opening, plastics and neurosurgery decided that it must be the plate that's infected, and I had to go back for surgery number three. They took out the plate. So no plate, no skull kind of badass <laughs> and walking around feeling okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember you telling me that you have to be careful going to concerts because if there's uh, people dancing up a storm, you don't want to get an elbow on top of your head because it would literally be an elbow to your brain tissue. <laughs> Absolutely. Things have scarred down and become thicker now, but I still wear a bump hat, which is let's insert into a baseball cap when I go into crowds. <laughs> that sounds like a smart idea. <laughs> so I was recovering well from surgery number three. And while in hospital, I was talking to my team about pain in my sternum. It had been going on for the last couple weeks, but I had had a recent scan that was clear. 
when I advocated for myself and when they checked through with radiology, the second look identified that they missed something. This meant more radiation, but again, it worked. It took away my pain and allowed me to get hugs again. So I was on antibiotics in the hopes to avoid surgery and found out that I was metastatic to my lungs with multiple lesions, top to bottom, on both sides. A week after that, I was sitting with my cousin and started to get sensitivity to the sunset, which isn't normal for me. So I put my sunglasses on while we were sitting on the patio. And as the dinner went on, I got tension around my temporal areas, tension around my occipital bones, and stiffness that went all the way down my back. I was predisposed to it. They didn't think it was going to happen, but some other bug must have jumped in there. And I went to the emergency department with bacterial meningitis. Well, at this time, I was treated for meningitis and admitted to hospital. And it was remarkable that after two days, I felt way better. But it became very much apparent that surgery was needed to help clear out this infection. So I went in for surgery number four in July. So I was discharged from hospital about a week after this surgery. I recovered quite well. And then on the Sunday, I woke up in the middle of the night with a grabbing pleuritic chest pain on my left side. I had to go to the emergency department yet again to find out what was going on. I had a pleural effusion. So since my disease was progressing and became part of my pleura, my oncologist decided that it was time to start chemotherapy. My infection had been addressed and my wound was healing. It'd be ideal to give it another little while before having to compromise my wound healing. And with the knowledge that my oncologist had of me wanting to travel, she said, get away. So I did for two weeks. That's when you went to Europe, right? That's when I went to Europe and it was beautiful. When I got back, Anton, I wasn't looking so hot. I'd done very well on the trip and it was only a little bit of shortness of breath I had in the last couple of days. But by the time I landed, things started to progress quickly. And I did a couple hours after landing, went back to the emergency department. So at this point in time, what shocked me was seeing just the x-ray. It was a complete whiteout of my left lung, and my heart was not on the left side, but on the right side. So it was squeezed and not able to function at its capacity. So needless to say, I was admitted again <laughs> with oxygen, and thoracics came down and put a chest tube in. I drained four and a half liters of fluid. So I actually started to feel better a couple days ago, feel a little bit more like me. I still have some shortness of breath, but that kind of brings us up to today. Wow. So I got to say first, Barb, that it takes a serious amount of courage for you to be able to tell your whole story to literally thousands of, of listeners uh, of EM cases the subject of this podcast is compassionate care, and you had multiple ED visits. How did compassionate care in the ED play into your journey? Well, thank you, Anton, for that. I think it's important to share. Sharing allows us to actually connect on a deeper level because I'm an emergency physician, just as most people are listening to this podcast or an emergency care provider. And Cancer doesn't discriminate. It can happen to any of us. But realizing from the other perspective, the patient perspective, what really matters in care has been important to me to share with everybody. And compassion has made a difference. Obviously, this year has been a lot. Um, and I've experienced more procedures, tests, treatments, transfusions, admissions, and nights in the emergency department than I ever would have wanted or would wish upon anyone. And as things get more complicated, I think it's interesting that the emergency department is the last place that I ever want to go. 
It's not because I've had horrible experiences. I love the emergency department as a physician. It's just that I've had too many experiences, period. I've had too much time sitting in waiting rooms, which has probably given me some PTSD of waiting rooms, to be honest, or in chairs when I was stable. And when I did get a bed, because I was more sick, I actually counted that as a huge win. It's been too much time explaining my complicated story over and over again to multiple nurses and then learners and then physicians. And it's not that I don't want to share. It's just the time and the energy that it takes to do it over and over again. Especially when a lot of those faces turn to expressions of pity. It never feels good. It has been too many nights admitted under bright lights and in a noisy department. It's also been too much time feeling forgotten, even though I'm somebody that knows the system. It's also too much time in a place where I don't want to be rather than with the people that I love spending my life the way I want to live it. But there are times when the emergency department healthcare workers, nurses, and doctors have come to just check in and tell me about pending tests or consults, when they have tried to give me estimated timelines, when they have showed their heart, where they have said things like, I can't imagine what you've been through and I'm so sorry, or what you've gone through takes an incredible strength, or I know this is a tough place for you to be right now and I want to do everything I can to make it as smooth as possible. Please let me know if you need anything. Or, I know you're a patient direct to this service, but my name is blank and I will be here with you until they come. Those have been moments when I felt compassion in the emergency department and those are moments that made all the difference. All right. I mean, those are really good examples of compassionate care that have you know made a difference to you specifically. And we'll talk a little bit later about how we can say things just like that, that really do make a difference to our patients. Now, I've heard patients describe their day in the ED literally as the worst day in their life. And my first reaction is that they're probably exaggerating. But when you think about it, and after listening to your story, you know, many patients are, are really scared, they're confused, they're anxious, they're sad, and sometimes they're completely emotionally numb. And you know, it's usually for good reason. And I think we probably tend to forget this in our daily hustle. Yeah, I think we do forget it. I don't think that anyone comes to the emergency department in the vast majority of cases because they want to. Even with minor complaints, maybe they come because they don't know what to do or where to go, or they don't have a good access to their family doctor, or they don't like their family doctor or trust their family doctor, which is even worse. I think even these little complaints, they're coming to ask you for help. Just like if I were to drive my car and all of a sudden hear a grinding noise. Being an average Joe, I probably could call a few friends, but most likely I'd probably just stop driving and bring it to a mechanic. Most likely to find out that there's nothing seriously wrong with my car and it took five minutes to just make some adjustments. But I'm not a mechanic, just as our patients are not doctors. On the other hand, they could be coming in with some serious complaint, whether it be a severe headache, respiratory distress, or cardiac arrest, and they're still asking desperately for our help. Again, it's not true for every patient, but patients in the ED are often experiencing things that they have never felt, that are terrifying, and that they don't understand. I have felt this way myself over the past year many times, and I have the background of being an emergency physician. So what do you think that means for patients? So it's our job to treat them, no matter how small the complaint it is. And what we can do even more is to educate them so that maybe they're empowered and are able to make better decisions in the future. So Barbara, I remember you telling me that some of the things that you remembered from your emergency visits had little to do actually with the medical care, but had everything to do with how you felt and how you were treated as a, as a person. 
what do people remember from their emergency visits or whatever care they're taking of in the ICU or wherever it is? What does the literature say about what they actually remember? I mean, do they remember that you proficiently did an LP? Do they remember that you got their specific diagnosis of a migraine headache? Or is it more, do they remember the things like how you made them feel? Although I think we wish it to be our expert care, in fact, the evidence has shown that what patients remember is how you make them feel. And there are two studies that I draw upon for this. They're both actually about PTSD. Um, the first study was done in Sweden on 56 survivors of a severe car crash. And they analyzed data five years later about what these survivors remembered. Well, one of the things that they remember is the pain that they felt that day. But what came up repeatedly as the second most prominent thing that these survivors remember was the lack of compassionate care of their providers. That just doesn't feel right. The other study I'll draw on also talks about PTSD. And this is actually specifically in the emergency department. In the emergency department, they utilized something called a care score. And that just measured compassion scored by the patient perspective. It was measured from 10 to 50, just so you have a range of numbers. And then they assessed PTSD symptoms one month after. Outcomes showed that one point difference on that care measure was associated with a 7% decrease in odds of PTSD symptoms at one month. So compassion actually was associated with a decrease in PTSD. So if Barbara's story wasn't enough to convince all you listeners that compassion is important for you and your patients, what we're going to try to explore in the next section of this podcast is the evidence for the healing power of compassion, that compassion is at least associated with, if not having a causal relationship with, better outcomes for our patients and healthier, happier lives for ourselves. But before we get into the evidence, we need to get some definitions under our belts. So first, Dr. Tatum, how should we define compassion so that we're sort of all on the same page with the rest of the podcast here? Okay, so I think a good definition of compassion is to understand that it's an emotional response first to another person's pain or suffering. And then what's key is then it's the desire to help. So it's that actionable component of not just connecting, but then wanting to do something about it. So that desire to help is the key component is that you're actually doing something as opposed to something like empathy, which is just the feeling. I always get mixed up between empathy, sympathy, compassion. So there's all these words thrown around all the time. And I think you're right. I think people do mix them up. And I think in this context, it's very important to understand those differences. So what is the difference between compassion, empathy, and sympathy? This is a really important question, Anton, because these three terms do get substituted for each other, and yet they are very different. So first, let's focus on sympathy and empathy, since we described compassion. Sympathy involves understanding someone else's feelings, whereas empathy involves the ability to feel what someone else is feeling, or rather being able to put oneself in another's shoes. One of the best explanations of the difference between these two terms is a short, less than three-minute YouTube video narrated by Brene Brown, a quite famous woman who has a PhD in social work, has completed one of the most viewed TED Talks, as well as a Netflix special on her lifetime studies in vulnerability, courage, shame, and empathy. In the video, there's a fox undergoing a tough time with a black cloud above his head, and he had fallen into a cave. A bear comes along and demonstrating empathy, he jumps into the cave to stand beside the fox, feeling the black cloud with him and telling the fox that he's not alone. A moose follows to demonstrate sympathy and looks down into the hole saying, oh, things look bad down there, eh? Want a sandwich? Going on with unhelpful statements, trying to make things better by pointing out possible silver linings. Brene Brown easily illustrates how empathy fuels connection, whereas sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy is feeling with someone. 
It's not about fixing. It's not about taking action. It's about connection. And I would add to this that sympathy feels like pity, whereas empathy feels like you're not alone. Going back to compassion, compassion is a connection and then action. And I think it's interesting to highlight that neuroscience research using MRI scans actually studies what areas of the brain light up when somebody experiences empathy versus experiencing compassion. Empathy highlights the pain centers, and so it can feel bad because you're experiencing someone else's pain. Compassion lights up the reward pathways and actually makes us feel good. Understanding this difference and the power of the difference on the provider, I think, is essential when talking about what we're talking about today. Uh, so is it fair enough to say that you don't necessarily have to be empathetic to be compassionate? Because I have heard some physicians say, for example, I tried to do an ICU fellowship and I couldn't finish my ICU fellowship because I was feeling so much empathy for the patients that it was crushing me. Like it was painful, just like you said in the MRI studies, and they actually couldn't finish their ICU fellowship. But that doesn't mean that you can't be compassionate, right? Because like you said, compassion is the action part. So theoretically, at least, you can be compassionate without feeling empathy because my understanding is that empathy is more of an innate thing that you either have or you don't. Uh, whereas compassion can be learned. And whether you're an empathic person or not, you can still display compassion, which can help your patients. And I think it's a little bit beyond my expertise to talk about whether empathy can be learned. But what I will say is that you can or you cannot include empathy with your compassion. So compassionate care doesn't demand empathy, but it can involve it if that's the way that the provider completes their compassionate care. Compassionate care, though, is a behavior, so it can be learned. And I think that that's the key. We're not talking about what someone believes in their mind as they care for a person, but it's rather how they behave towards the patient and how do they effectively communicate compassion towards that patient. And this is what could, and what I would argue should, be included in our medical education. All right. So when some docs say things like either you're a compassionate person or you're not, they're wrong. They can learn. Okay. <laughs> We're all capable of learning. All right. Now, some of our listeners also might be thinking, you know, I don't have time to be compassionate in the ED. And those listeners would not be alone because apparently, at least in one study, they found that 56% of doctors said that they don't have time for compassion when they did a survey. So Dr. Tatum, is compassionate care time-consuming? I mean, do we really have time for compassion in a busy emergency department? You know, I've heard some people say that actually compassion can make you more efficient. So how does that work? You're absolutely right. Most doctors think that they don't have time. But evidence shows that when you invest time in people, you actually feel like you have more time or that you're not so much in a hurry. So when you give compassionate care, you actually feel like you're less rushed. Um, there have been studies involving short training videos in the neuroscience of empathy. And these training videos made doctors interact with patients in ways rated as more empathetic without them even realizing. Another study demonstrated that patients who receive compassionate care not only recover faster from symptoms that brought them to the doctor, but they also have fewer visits, fewer tests, and fewer referrals. The proportion of these patients who are referred to specialists was 59% lower, and the diagnostic testing 84% lower. Wow. So you spend a minute or two being compassionate, and that will actually indirectly result in you ordering less tests and referring less patients, and that actually makes things more efficient, potentially. That's at least what the literature backs up, especially finding that effective communication, which you talked about in an earlier podcast in depth, results in shorter, more efficient visits. So the more effective communication skills you have, the less tests you order, and the more time you save in the emergency department. 
I would also add to that, just as any other things, as you learn it, as you become more comfortable with it, using compassionate care in your practice becomes easier and becomes more natural. So instead of being medicine and then compassion, it's medicine and compassion throughout all points of care. Now, I've also been fortunate to have mentors to demonstrate this to me in the past in some of the most extreme situations. So as they're starting a recess with a conscious patient, their well-oiled machine is getting going on all the tasks that they know they need to start, and they sneak in and hold the patient's hand or their shoulder and just say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm your doctor today. We have to move quickly. You're not going to see me for a while, but I'm with you, and I will come back and check on you. And seamlessly, they start the resuscitation without being noticed, and they've already connected with their patient. Wow. So what I was saying near the beginning of the podcast about how your first priority, of course, is resuscitating the patient, and then your second priority should be compassionate care, you can actually do them simultaneously, very smoothly and easily without wasting any time. I've seen some beautiful role models to illustrate this, and there's just so many opportunities for compassionate care at all different types of medical encounters. I want to move on now to the evidence for compassionate care in terms of improved patient outcomes and resource utilization and how it might even prevent burnout. Now, this part of the podcast, Dr. Tate and I thought was important because the topic is, I would admit, and most emergency doctors would probably agree, is sort of fluffy sounding, compassionate care. But what we've discovered um, after reading the literature and particularly a book by an intensivist and an ED doctor that they did a systematic review of about 200 articles uh, on this exact topic, uh, there is actually quite a lot of evidence, most of it observational, some RCTs, but there is actually quite a lot of, lot of evidence that affects outcomes uh, for compassionate care. So let's start with the evidence that compassion improves patient outcomes. Dr. Tatum, can you just tell us a little bit about what the literature shows when it comes to compassionate care and what actually happens to our patients after they leave the ED? Well, there's actually an abundance of data on this, including that compassion can reduce pain, improve healing, as well as recovery time. Not only that, but it can help alleviate depression and anxiety. There's a study that looks specifically at achieving optimal blood sugar for diabetic patients in family practice. And in patients that received compassionate care, the likelihood of achieving optimal blood sugars was 80% higher. And the likelihood of then getting a serious complication from diabetes decreased by 41%. So that's like an RCT where they randomize people to either standard care versus standard care plus some compassionate statements. Yeah, and even in surgery, another study demonstrated that compassion delivered to the patient by either the nurse or doctor right before going into surgery resulted in patients feeling less anxious, having easier sedation, having a decreased need for opioids after surgery, as well as a shorter hospital stay. All right, so that's just sort of a little taste of the literature out of literally dozens of articles out there that show that compassion actually improves patient outcomes. What about for patient compliance? You know, I imagine that if the physician expresses compassion to the patient, that they'll be more likely to take their medications and and go by their medical advice. That's a pretty big problem in emergency department patients that we see again and again and again. They come back and you find out that they didn't take their medication that they were supposed to or that they didn't take the advice that the previous emergency doctor told them. Can compassion actually make a difference to patient compliance? Compliance definitely improves with physician compassion. Research shows that when healthcare providers care deeply about patients and the patients feel that, that they are more likely to take their medications. This likely has a large contribution to what we already discussed about patient outcomes and can have a huge benefit in so many different contexts. 
patient compliance is probably better with compassion and outcomes are probably better with compassion. They're kind of related. What about quality of care? And specifically, does compassionate care reduce medical error? Well, much of the research that I came across actually looked at a related topic of depersonalization, which is the inability to connect with patients. It's seeing patients indifferently. This would, by definition, actually not allow for compassionate care. Treating the patient as an object and not as a person, which is what leads into part of burnout. So it's definitely a component of burnout. Right. Yeah, that. That's so I think there's sort of three factors in burnout and depersonalization is one of the big ones. All right. And so um, what does depersonalization then have to do with quality of care? So one study that looked at 7,905 residents every three months and evaluated them with anonymous surveys that asked about major medical errors within the last three months found that 40% reported major medical errors at one point in time. Now, these residents were also measured on a rigorous scale that looked at depersonalization as well as emotional exhaustion. And those that scored in the highest tier of depersonalization and emotional exhaustion versus the lowest tier were 45 and 54 percent more likely to have major medical errors. So the higher the depersonalization versus the lowest level of depersonalization, was a remarkable difference in terms of leading to major medical errors. Okay. So simply put, if you're burnt out, you're more likely to make medical errors. Absolutely. And if you're burnt out, you're not able to provide compassionate care. Okay. So we'll talk a little bit about the relationship between burnout and compassion in a little bit, but let's just continue with sort of the the evidence around the benefits of compassion. So, so far we've covered patient outcomes and compliance as well as medical errors. Next up is the risk of complaints and litigation. Now, it seems intuitive that if patients feel your compassion when you see them in the ED, they'll be less likely to complain about you or sue you. But what does the literature actually show when it comes to compassionate care and patient complaints? I think a interesting highlight here is a CMPA bulletin that looks at a RCT with 437 adults that were taken from an emergency department waiting room. Okay. And the CMPA is the Canadian Medical Protective Association, and they're the body that helps physicians through lawsuits. What they did is they took these adults from the waiting room and have them watch a simulated patient-physician discharge conversation. So it was two videos that differed only by the inclusion of two brief empathetic statements. Verbalizations that, one, the physician recognized that the patient is concerned about their symptoms, and two, that the patient knows their typical state of health better than the physician seeing them for the first time, and that they did the right thing by seeking evaluation. They then asked the participants their thoughts regarding suing the physician in the event of a missed outcome leading to lost work and then to rate them on measures of satisfaction with the physician encounter. The group with the empathetic statement showed significantly less thoughts of litigation than the non-empathetic group. In a day where we are all litigation adverse, it might be as easy as working towards having compassionate care in your practice to avoid litigation. All right. So there's at least an association between compassionate care, good patient outcomes and compliance, less patient complaints and litigation. What about for the system? So, you know, if we all provided compassionate care, let's say, would that help the system in any way? Yes. There was a few studies that I came across showing that compassionate care led to decreased excess use of the medical system, decreased tests, decreased uh, referral to services, And all of these would lead to decreased costs of our system. All right. So we've talked about how compassionate care can benefit our patients and the system. What about the benefits of compassionate care to physicians themselves? Now, I can tell you from personal experience that when I'm cold and distant and abrupt with a patient at the end of an insanely challenging shift, I feel really bad about it afterwards. 
And conversely, when I connect with a patient emotionally and feel like I'm really helping them through a difficult time, I feel really good about it afterwards. Well, as the Dalai Lama said, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Well, we'll see if the Dalai Lama had it right when it comes to the medical literature. What does the medical literature show when it comes to the relationship between compassionate care and job satisfaction for physicians? I think he did. Doctors with higher empathy scores have more job satisfaction and less burnout. And studies show that connecting with patients makes physicians happier and more fulfilled. The reverse association is also found to be true, where a lack of compassion and empathy has a clear relationship with burnout. All right. Yeah, I find that relationship between compassion and burnout an interesting one. You know, it always comes up, you know, is it the chicken or the egg? So is it that if you're burnt out, you're less likely to be compassionate? Or is it that if you're less compassionate, then that's what burns you out? Well, I think here I'll draw on an excellent book that you've already mentioned by an intensivist and an emergency doctor called Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. The physician that is a critical care specialist talks about how we've always heard that burnout crushes compassion, but it's probably more likely that those with low compassion are ones predisposed to burnout that human connection, and specifically a compassionate connection, can actually build resilience and resistance to burnout. And it's what we should be encouraging in our medical culture and within our medical education. The resilience is further emphasized by the phenomenon of a helper's high, which is the feeling of reward that comes from helping others. And it actually benefits the brains and the nervous system of the care provider of the giver. Yeah, I came across a quote in that book when the intensivist was talking about how he was burnt out and how kind of the fog of burnout was lifted, so to speak, when he started to become more compassionate. It was something like, you know, instead of what we normally do when we burn out, that like sort of the natural thing to do is just to kind of escape. But he said, you know, quote, that he connected more, not less cared more, not less, leaned in rather than pulled back. And that was when the fog of burnout began to lift. Yeah, he believed that the cure to burnout didn't rely outside of care, but actually was at the point of care. Now, assuming that we've convinced our audience that there is at least some value in compassionate care, the next step in becoming a compassionate provider is to learn how to actually do it. So if there was some sort of simple prescription you could give our listeners for becoming a compassionate care provider? What are some simple scripts or solutions for for our listeners that they can apply sort of on their next shift? I think the easiest thing you can do is just to have some compassionate statements on hand. So I mentioned some of the compassionate statements that were delivered to me during my care, but some more that I can lend you are, I know this must be a tough experience to go through but I'm here with you. We will go through this together. You look uncomfortable. What can I do to help you right now? Okay, so really simple statements. Those are like little scripts that take a few seconds each that really can make a difference. Absolutely, and that's just a start. And you can come up with ones that feel more natural to you and more comfortable in your own vocabulary because everybody has their own way of approaching patients. But just to actually write things down or have them in your head and make sure that you have some go-tos because you can really insert these statements generically for many patients. I want to dig a little bit deeper, being compassionate, certainly can't be just a few little statements. What are some sort of other strategies to improve compassionate care that we can, again, easily apply in practice? So I think we can talk about some actionable steps. One's from start to finish in an encounter. It doesn't mean that you need to use all of them. You can pick a couple. It just highlights areas where compassionate care is easily available to you. So first I would say, Number one, before going into a new patient room, 
take a second to take a deep breath and quiet your mind and let go your past patience. You're now entering a room where you need to be present. Two, I'd say it's really nice to thank the patient for waiting for you. Make sure that they're comfortable. Consider their family members. Consider if they're maybe on a bedpan. Small things like that that open the encounter in a, in a positive way. Three, sit down, lean in, and smile. There are small pieces of nonverbal communication that are really important. That patient has waited a significant amount of time to come see you. Don't make them feel devalued. All right. So, so far, the first three sort of actionable items uh, that we've talked about are first, when you go into the room to first sort of regroup, you know, try and at least temporarily forget about the previous patients and kind of be present when you go into that room, then to thank the patient for waiting, make sure that they're comfortable. And then lastly, it's those nonverbal communication things, simple things, make sure you're sitting down, lean in towards them instead of leaning back and just a smile. If you can muster one up, can really just go a long way to making them feel more comfortable and recognizing that they've been waiting for hours just to see you. And I'll move on to number four, where I'll say, let the patient tell their story. So there's a JAMA article that's, that finds that patients need on average 29 seconds to tell their story, yet they're often interrupted after 11. Those 18 seconds can make a big difference. Five, look at the patient and actually listen to them. Don't listen to them to get ready to respond to them, but listen to them to hear what they have to say and to understand it. Yeah, I find emergency doctors are especially susceptible to just saying what they think rather than really listening to what the person's saying. Yeah, often there are patient encounters where you know what's happening early on, but it's disrespectful to interrupt. And sometimes we don't actually know what's going on. And those 18 seconds might give you extraordinarily valuable information. I'll move on to say, be thorough and address the patient's concerns. They often have an agenda, they have questions, and give them the opportunity to speak their mind. Then, empower them with relevant education. Patients often have a higher ability to understand medical issues than we give them credit for, and giving them that opportunity and that empowerment allows them to be more autonomous. Then involve them in setting up a plan that they are happy with, and most importantly, a plan that they understand. Yeah, that comes back to the patient compliance, right? So if they're involved in their plan and they understand their plan, they're much more likely to actually carry it out. Absolutely, and often they're gonna choose what you think is the right route anyway, but then you have them on board. I'll move on to setting expectations and explaining timelines, i.e. statements like, some things happen quickly in the emergency department, but one of the scans we ordered is a CT, and that's probably going to take an hour or so to get, and then going to take another hour or so to read. So as soon as we have the results, the nurse will alert me and I will come, but it might take a while. Or, I know you're in pain and I'm going to treat it as best as possible to reduce the pain, but I don't think that we'll get it down to zero. Then finally, end with a compassionate statement and leave it on a positive note. And these are your back pocket little compassionate statements that can be pretty generic. All right. So those are great kind of common sense tips. I find that when you're really rushed, it's very easy to skip over those things. You know, it seems to me that there's so many missed opportunities for compassionate care. You know, like let's say a patient tells you that they're having a tough time rather than responding with a so-called terminator response that stops the dialogue in its tracks. I find it incredibly useful to just take a few seconds to explore why they're having a tough time and just offer a little bit of emotional support. 
you know, sometimes, and, and this is sort of a big advantage for me, I end up finding key details in this dialogue that really help me clinch a diagnosis that's been missed by multiple doctors who've kind of rushed through their encounters with the patients in the past. So we've talked about some easy scripts. We've talked about a bunch of actionable items so that you can be compassionate. I just want to touch a little bit on the barriers to compassionate care. Um, I think it's important that if we recognize and understand the barriers to compassionate care, we can try and avoid those barriers and that'll let us be more compassionate. What, what are the barriers to compassionate care? Well, I actually think there's quite a few barriers to compassionate care, but have narrowed it down to the top three that I think are important to highlight. One being personal issues. And I know that might sound quite generic, but coming into work tired, having home or personal issues, any mental health issues can really impede your ability to connect with patients because you're having a hard time connecting even with yourself. And either reflecting on that before a shift, trying to leave some of those biases to the side, and also identifying for yourself what some of those personal barriers that you can change. Uh, Some of that coming back again to identifying burnout and doing what you can to address your own burnout can make a world of difference in your ability to connect with patients. Number two is approach issues. And I think we all go into patient encounters or into patient rooms with our own agendas. And that agenda can really impede your ability to listen to the patient's agenda. I mentioned it already, but approaching a conversation or approaching your listening with the desire to reply or the desire to jump in and guess or the desire to get a diagnosis. Sometimes we do that too soon and instead we need to sit back and our approach to listening should be to hear, should be to understand. Three, I think another barrier to compassion is erosion. And erosion is just not practicing those skills. So the less we practice our compassionate care, the less we're going to be good at it and the less we're going to be able to utilize it on the regular basis. All right. So yeah, you got to practice those skills just like you need to practice the skills of any procedure that you do in the emergency department. We're in kind of the home stretch now of the podcast. Before we get to sort of the future of compassionate care, I just want to review some of the no-nos, the don'ts uh, for compassionate care. Can you just kind of go through for us what we should not be doing when it comes to compassionate care? So first, do not act like your time is more important than the patient's. So once you walk into their room, don't already have one foot out the door. Do not use sentences that start with at least. At least statements will never come across as compassionate. So like, you know, if someone comes in with uh, a little hemorrhoid bleed saying, at least you're not having a massive GI bleed requiring uh, the ICU. (laughs) That makes no one feel better. (laughs) Three, do not assume what your patient knows or doesn't know, as well as what information they may want to know from you. Just ask them. It's very simple. Do not assume that a patient can't understand and therefore avoid even sharing the information with them. Give them the credit first. Do not make assumptions, period. Everyone has a story, and you don't know what your patient's story might be. I still look very healthy when I walk down the street, and no one would know anything that I might have gone through in the last year. Finally, do not treat your colleagues with a lack of respect or compassion. It is you setting a cultural example. Yeah, I mean, that's an important point. The last one about setting a cultural example you know, if everyone is respectful and compassionate towards each other and you have a culture in your emergency department of compassionate care, then kind of everyone wins. Now, it's quite a lot to ask of ED docs to become compassionate care superstars by themselves. What do you see as the path to all ED docs giving compassionate care besides 
harnessing sort of a compassionate care culture in your emergency department? Well, I think we really need to go back to the medical education piece. Medical education has a core curriculum and a secondary curriculum. And we all know the core curriculum. One step would be to add compassion as a vital piece of this curriculum, allowing for understanding, discussion, and practice. The secondary curriculum is what is not explicitly taught, but it's learned within experiencing the culture of medicine, observing communication, how residents treat other residents, staff, and medical students. It's observing how staff talk to or about each other, as well as how mentors treat and approach their patients with a certain level of compassion or integrity. These might be positive or negative experiences for a learner, but as a whole, they shape one's culture and they shape the future of our physicians. So I would ask first for you to try compassionate care for yourselves, your patients, and your colleagues. To keep in mind some of the overall benefits that we talked about today. And if you feel more comfortable with it, model it for others. Help change the culture that we have. And if you can, start a discussion. Make compassionate care talked about and known and allow it to grow. If you asked me if I was compassionate with my patients in the ED a year ago, I would have almost certainly judged myself harshly and said no. But after studying compassionate care and discussing it with you, Dr. Tatum, compassion is sort of with me now almost always. Now, granted, I still find it hard to incorporate compassionate care when, I've, when I'm really stressed out and exhausted. And there certainly are ED patients that create situations where I, f- where I feel like it's nearly impossible to be compassionate. You all know the kind of patient that I'm talking about. But in those moments when I'm stripped of my compassion, I can really feel it like big time. You know, I feel that there's something huge that's missing. And, and what do I do in those situations? Well, I pause, I breathe, I pivot, and I pull out a couple of those easy to remember scripts and just say them. And then it's amazing, like suddenly I just feel better and I'm quite sure my patient does too. So compassionate care really is a skill that can be cultivated and grown by each and every one of us. I mean, I contend that compassion should be integrated into our training and CME. And learning compassionate care allows us to develop our own resilience as EM docs in our very demanding environment. Compassion is not simply part of our nature. We shouldn't take it for granted. When we act out of compassion for a fellow human being, it really does have profound meaning. A huge part of why Dr. Tatum, despite having terminal metastatic cancer, is strong enough to expertly share her knowledge on this podcast is because of the compassionate care that she's received along the way. It's a real privilege that we all have to take care of patients in the ED and use our knowledge and skills, not just to fix their immediate problem, but to truly heal them. You can always find compassion amongst the chaos of the ED. Find your compassion, cultivate it, and use it. I'm quite sure that you and your patients will both benefit immeasurably. So thanks so much for your time and insights, Dr. Tatum. It really is incredible how you've been able to fight your way through this journey and not only survive, but to actually educate other people about really an an incredibly important issue in medicine in general, and specifically in emergency medicine, where it really is very hard for us to be compassionate. And hopefully we've convinced some of our listeners uh, the importance of compassion And by you sharing your story and your knowledge, I think there'll be hopefully thousands of patients out there who will will benefit from all that you've shared today. I don't think we need to be perfect, and I don't think we need to expect ourselves to be compassionate 100% of the time. There's no one that would do that. (laughs) But I think just trying a little bit can make a huge difference. And it certainly has made a difference for me. So I thank all of you guys 
listening out there for taking the time today to hear my story and for diving a little bit into the EBM literature with me. I thank all of you that might have been involved in my own care. It has made a difference to me and it's impacted my experience. And I, I hope everyone can see that compassion can really go a long way. So thank you, Anton, for having me today. It's been an incredible platform to start this discussion, and I hope it's a discussion that continues. And with that, I'll leave you with my personal sign-off in my blogs. Make waves. Be kind. After a truly inspirational battle with cancer, Dr. Barbara Tatum passed away on Wednesday, October 16th, 2019, at the age of 32, surrounded by family. To listen to a few colleagues of Dr. Tatum's share memories of her, please visit the show notes on the EM Cases website.